Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, all. Before we begin, two quick announcements. First, the Unchained survey is out now, and I'd so appreciate it if you could give us your thoughts and how Unchained is doing and what we could do better. Plus, I've got some questions for you about my upcoming book launch and the articles that I'm already starting to write. Two lucky survey respondents will receive a BTC candle, which is scented with Satoshi Wood, Musk Musk, Tulip Bulbs, and Finite Minerals. Head to surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2021 to fill out the survey today. Again, that's surveymonkey.com slash r slash unchained 2021. Second, I'm excited to announce that I'm now writing a Facebook bulletin newsletter, joining the likes of Malcolm Gladwell, Malala Yousafzai, and Adam Grant, among others. This is different from the daily email, which is mostly links out to news and recommended reads and a brief summary of usually one news item. The Facebook newsletter will contain news and feature articles by me. My first post is already up and out there, and every Friday you will also find the text and links to the weekly news recap at the end of every unconfirmed. Please subscribe to laurashin.bulletin.com. Again, you can sign up for my Facebook Bulletin newsletter at laurashin.bulletin.com. And now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor of Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the September 14th, 2021 episode of Unchained. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Looking for crypto market data that meets institutional standards? Digital Asset Research delivers curated and vetted crypto market data. Get crypto pricing and verified volume data, crypto asset reference data, and token and blockchain event tracking. Learn more at digitalassetresearch.com. Ledger is the secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. No need to use different platforms to manage and secure your crypto. You have one place for all your crypto needs. Visit ledger.com and make your crypto journey easier and safer. Today's topic is whether Bitcoin can be secured by transaction fees only. Here to discuss are Justin Drake, researcher at the Ethereum Foundation, and Vijay Boyapati, author of The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. Welcome, Justin and Vijay. Hi there. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Great to finally speak with you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the impetus for today's discussion came about from a previous show I did with Justin, in which he contended that in the not-too-distant future, like about maybe 20 to 30 years from now, he believes Bitcoin's block reward will be so low that the system will mostly be reliant on transaction fees and that, that, that those will actually not be large enough to secure the network. Since the show that we recorded previously was actually intended to focus on Ether as an asset, I decided that this topic is big enough that it needed its own show. 
So before we actually get into the meat of that topic, though, let's just have each of the guests state their background in crypto and also what they do now so that people can get a sense of each of your experience in the field. So Justin, why don't you start? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. Um, I'm helping uh, design what used to be called Ethereum 2.0, basically a set of upgrades to uh, improve Ethereum. I've been at the Ethereum Foundation for, for close to four years now. Before that, I was an entrepreneur building on top of Bitcoin through this uh, project called um, Open Bazaar. And before that, I was involved you know, tangentially with Bitcoin by running a Bitcoin ATM and also by um, running the Cambridge Bitcoin Meetup Group uh, in the UK. Okay, great. And Vijay? So I'm a computer scientist by training. I came to the US to do a PhD in computer science, but ended up at a startup called Google. Uh, I spent you know many years at Google. I, I left to do some political campaigning, but came back to tech. Uh, and I discovered Bitcoin in 2011 in a bet with a friend where I won the bet. And the bet was for a silver coin, but he told me to take the Bitcoin. And I said, what's that? And uh, I've sort of been going down the rabbit hole for the last decade to understand Bitcoin. And I wrote an article in 2018, uh, which I think has become the most read non-technical introduction to Bitcoin. It's been read over a million times, translated into 20 languages, called The Bullish Case for Bitcoin. And it's been now published as a book. So I'm really interested in the economics of Bitcoin. I've you know studied Austrian economics for a long time. So I'm a computer scientist with an interest in economics. All right. So now let's get into the topic of today's discussion. And why don't we just have Justin begin by laying out your theory for why you think Bitcoin will not be sufficiently secured by transaction fees. And then we can kind of, so you can just, you know, say that at a high level and then we'll like unpack it in greater detail throughout the show. So go ahead. Okay, sure. So um, I guess, you know, in terms of uh, the basics of, of Bitcoin security. Uh, we have what's called the security budget. Um, and the security budget is basically the rewards that are given to miners uh, to help secure the Bitcoin network. And this is made up of two components. Component number one is BTC issuance. So BTC is Bitcoin, the asset is just minted out of thin air and given to the miners. And then there's a second component, which is the fees. Now, to have this 21 million uh, limit, uh, what Satoshi Nakamoto did is that he had an exponential decrease of the issuance. Um, so right now, the issuance is about 1.6% uh, um, of, the, of the total supply. And there's a halving every, every four years, roughly. So if we look at a, a multi-decade time span, for example, 20 years, that's five halvings which is the equivalent of reducing the issuance by a factor of 32. So um, we go from roughly 320,000 uh, Bitcoin issued every year to only 10,000 Bitcoin issued every year. And there's you know, relatively good reasons to believe that 10,000 Bitcoin per year alone is not sufficient. So we need to, and, and also this number 10,000 Will, will keep decreasing exponentially. So if you wait another 10 years or another 20 years, it effectively almost goes to zero. So we need um, to be thinking about 
the security of Bitcoin from transaction fees only. Um, and it, it turns out that um, transaction fees are problematic for various reasons. One is that they cannot, the, the, the total fee volume cannot be guaranteed. So you can have periods of time where for some reason or another, the transactional utility of Bitcoin just dips below a safe minimum. And so you don't have this guaranteed security factor that you could have with issuance. Another um, problem with transaction fees is that they're, they're very volatile. Um, so for example, during bear, bull markets, they could be more than 10 times larger than during uh, bear markets. And so, you know, that, that leads to, to various problems. Um, for example, overpayment for security, um, which is kind of the, 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 the dual, um, of, of, of underpaying for, for, for security. Um, and then there's, there's more subtle aspects related to transaction fees. Um, for example, the fact that they can be stolen. So what do I mean by stolen? I mean that if you have a, a transaction with a very juicy transaction fee, that transaction could go in a block A or it could go into a block B. It does, it doesn't really have to be assigned to a very specific block. Unlike issuance where every single block kind of have a very, has a very controlled amount of, of issuance. And so there are some um, instances where, where you have very high uh, variance in the transaction fees in a given block that the longest chain rule starts to break down. It is, it is no longer incentive compatible for miners to follow this rule. Um, and you, you start having what we call chain instability. So basically transaction fees are, are worrisome from both a quantitative standpoint and also from a, from a qualitative standpoint, uh, relative to, to, to issuance. Um, so that's, that's in, in a nutshell, the, 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 the basic argument as to why we should be at the very least, um, you know, having the discussion and asking ourselves, um, will, uh, Bitcoin be, be, be secure in the context of low, uh, low issuance. Okay. And BJ, do you want to start with kind of like your just overall basic response and then we can go one by one through these points? Yeah, there's actually tons of stuff to unpack. And I think this debate is a great opportunity for education in general. Uh, and I, I hope you'll permit me, Laura, to take a step back and t- talk a little bit about security and, and, and what it means with Bitcoin, because I don't think many people have really delved into you know, what does it mean when someone sends me a Bitcoin? Like, what's what's the security around them sending me a Bitcoin? To do that, I just want to very briefly talk about the concept of ownership. Uh, because sending some someone some Bitcoin, they, they own the Bitcoin. But in our real world, we have this concept of ownership where you possess something, Laura. So your microphone in your, your house, you possess that. And we have this social structure around it which is an apparatus of coercion, which is the government or the state. Uh, and the government steps in when someone takes that microphone from you. So this is kind of an imperfect system of ownership. And, and what um, Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies are trying to provide is a, a form of ownership over a digital good, which doesn't require an apparatus of coercion. Now, with that background, the concept of perfect ownership would be something like 
I give you, Laura, uh, a car or something like that, and the car has a force shield around it and no one can touch the car except you, that would be perfect ownership. We, we don't have that, but we try to get close to that with uh, something like Bitcoin. And the way it works is that when I send a Bitcoin to you, your ownership of that, your strength of ownership increases over time as you have a number of block confirmations. And the way you, you can think about this, I'll try and give an analogy so your, your listeners can understand this. Imagine I give you a block of gold or a brick of gold and each block confirmation is like a brick wall that's built around that block of gold. And each time there's a new confirmation, it becomes harder and harder to get that gold. And so if you have a whole number of confirmations, then it's very, very costly to get that, that bar of gold because you have to tear down the wall to get to it. And this is essentially the security model that's used by Bitcoin and you know, various other proof-of-work cryptocurrencies. And I think it's important to have that kind of uh, concept in our head that this isn't really binary. When we talk about security, we can't say, when I send you, Laura, Bitcoin, you have it. You just have greater and greater confidence over time that you really have it because the cost of taking it away from you, of unwinding the transaction that's sent to you, becomes so high that it becomes infeasible, infeasible to take it away from you. Now, each brick in this wall that's protecting the gold bar that we've, we're securing is made up of two components. It's made up of the block subsidy, which is kind of the reward that a miner gets when they mine a block, and transaction fees. So you can think of the height of the brick as made up of two things. And over time, one part of the bricks uh, is going down, which is the block subsidy is going down. So the size of the bricks will go down. And we, we don't know how small the bricks are going to go. It's going to become, the bricks are going to be essentially just transaction fees. Imagine the brick has two components, a, a green part and a red part. And the green part eventually is going to go away. And the bricks are just going to be the red part. And the red part is transaction fees. So I think it's important to have that mental model because uh, one thing I think is important to understand, Justin brought this up, is that sometimes we overpay for security. Currently, the bricks that are being put around each transaction are huge because the block subsidy is really large. And so uh, it's interesting when an exchange receives Bitcoin, they will say, we want six confirmations before we believe that we have the Bitcoin because we want a very low risk that this can be unwound. And, that, and what they're saying is we want six very, very large bricks around this confirmation that we received some Bitcoin. Now, it is possible there are, you know, alternative strategies where you can say um, if the bricks got smaller, you just wait for more bricks, right? And this is actually true for other cryptocurrencies uh, which have much less work put into each block. So, for instance, uh, Bitcoin Cash, the amount of mining energy that goes into mining a single block of Bitcoin Cash is much, much lower. So if you're an exchange, you're not going to say, we will accept your Bitcoin Cash with six confirmations. We might wait for 60 confirmations. I I'm saying all of this is kind of like, uh, to provide an analogy and to give some context as we as we talk about this discussion uh, going forward. But my point is, it's I think it's important to the, the bigger point I'm trying to make is that we don't know what the right amount of security is. Security is a spectrum. It's not 
good security or bad security. It's a level of security. And that level of security is actually a little bit subjective. It's, it's not necessarily the same for everyone. So me accepting a small payment, if you sending me, you know, a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, one block confirmation is certainly enough for me. But if someone's sending, you know, a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, they, they, the people who are the person who's receiving that billion dollars might want 30 confirmations because the amount of security that they want would be commensurate with the amount or the value that's being sent. Right. But so if I were to summarize where I think you're going with this, you're trying to say that even if part of what Justin is saying is right, or even if someone were to try to attack the network, that there's only so much they could do because just the amount of effort to really unwind things would would be far greater. Is that a fair? Because by the way, Justin clearly disagrees with you. He was making all kinds of uh, faces and whatever. So I definitely want to get to him, but I want to make sure that you know we understand your point uh, in terms of this discussion. This is only one of the arguments I have. There's a whole number of them, but most of them center around the fact that I think Justin's argument is kind of a static analysis that doesn't really think about the game theory of what happens uh, when Bitcoin is, you know, widely adopted. Uh, and it's, this, this is more just the context to think about how security is treated from a micro perspective rather than a macro perspective. From the perspective of someone who's accepting Bitcoin, they are able to change the amount of security that they want for a transaction. So you can conceivably say that right now we're massively overpaying for security. Like Justin, I don't think Justin can um, realistically claim that he knows what the right amount of security for Bitcoin is. Uh, I would actually argue that right now we're probably overpaying for security for Bitcoin because the block subsidy makes the rewards so high that we have just a gigantic amount of resources being put into Bitcoin mining. It seems to me that the network could probably get away with less security over time. But, you know, we're going to get into the argument of nation state attacks, which I think is going to be interesting uh, and how many resources they can bring to bear. But I, I think my view is that it's not correct to think about security as a binary thing. Okay, so go ahead, Justin, with your response. Yeah, so um, Vijay is correct that security is a spectrum if, and this is a very important if, if the attacker has less than 50% of the hash power, then he is right. The notion of confirmation makes sense. You know, if you have, you know, six confirmation, that's better than one confirmation, et cetera, et cetera. But the if might not hold true. There is a possibility that the attacker has more than 50% of the hash rate, in which case it is binary. It's no longer a spectrum. The attacker has essentially achieved God mode over Bitcoin, the, the blockchain. And one of the things that the attacker could do, for example, is one of the simplest attacks is simply to mine empty blocks for the rest of time. And as such, even if you have a Bitcoin, which is a UTXO behind, you know, a million confirmations, doesn't matter. You know, you can think it's yours in the sense that you can look on the blockchain, you know, on blockchain.info or whatever block explorer. You can be happy that you own the one Bitcoin, but you're unable to spend it. Why? Because all the blocks are, are empty and Bitcoin has lost censorship resistance. So I would, I, you know, I very heavily disagree 
with the fact that security is, is non-binary. It is binary as soon as the attacker reaches 51% of the hash rate. Now, you could ask yourself the question, is it reasonable, yes or no, for an attacker to have 51% of the hash rate? And I would argue that, yes, it is very much reasonable for an attacker to have 51% of the hash rate. Even today, it would be reasonable. Why is it reasonable? And the reason is that at the end of the day, hash rate is, is, can be manufactured. It can be purchased. And so you can think of it in, in, in dollar terms. And so you can look, for example, um, at the, the hash rate of the, the Bitcoin network, which is roughly 150 million terahashes per second. And then you can ask yourself, how much does it cost to manufacture and deploy you know, one terahash per second, and you can put a, a dollar amount to that, you know, maybe $50, maybe a slightly different number. Um, but let's say that we assign $50, then the, the, the cost to make the most naive attack possible, which is to, to manufacture, you know, 150 million terahashes, and then to just turn on all the hardware in one go and perform a 51% attack is roughly $7.5 billion. So that is the security shield, right? The economic security of Bitcoin, which in the grand scheme of things is peanuts, right? If you look at the government, uh, like the United States, their military budget is $750 billion per year. That's for just a single year. Um, so in a single year, the United States has a hundred times the budget to go 51% attack Bitcoin. Uh, you know, gain this, this God mode capability, um, and, and effectively remove all the, the nice properties that, uh, Bitcoin enjoys today. Could I just respond to that, Laura? Yeah. I, I want to, um, split this debate into like the, the incentives to attack Bitcoin sort of endogenously versus exogenously, which is the people within the network. What is their incentive to attack it versus the people who are antagonistic? To Bitcoin and want to attack it. I think it's important to separate that out because I, you know, Justin's making a point which I somewhat agree with, but he said that, you know, when you have 51% of the network, you're in God mode and you can do anything and you will, you will do anything. That, that's actually not true. There's been empirical studies where there have been periods of time when more than 50% of the hash rate was controlled by a pool and there was, they, there was no 51% attacks. They never tried to do a 51% attack. And Satoshi des designed the system so that it it's much better to just mine the coins than to attack the network. If you're participating in the network, there's a huge detriment to attacking. If you're being rewarded in Bitcoin and you're trying to steal a bit, steal some Bitcoin with a, uh, a double spend attack, you're undermining the network in which you're being rewarded. Right, so but never, I, I think it, what he's saying is this is somebody that isn't participating in the network. Yeah, they just want yeah, to kill yeah, it. Yeah. I, but also one thing, Justin, it, I, I don't think it's true that if you 51% that you can just go to God mode because there's like, it's kind of limited what you can actually do. And for yeah, other correct. miners that win rewards, like they can continue adding to the blockchain. So, um, it so there's, really. There's, there's basically three things that an attacker can do. The first thing is censorship and it can be full censorship. As I mentioned, you just mine empty blocks or it could be partial censorship. So. You could imagine, for example, if it's the Chinese government that makes this attack, they could say, you know, Chinese transactions can go through or Chinese friendly, Chinese unfriendly transactions and can't go through. And so the associated UTXOs would be essentially um, lost. 
that's one type of attack. Another type of attack is is reorgs. Um, so, for example, someone you know spends Bitcoin. The, the the recipient thinks he owns the Bitcoin, but actually he doesn't really because a reorg happens and the UTXO is spent to someone else. And then there's the the kind of third type of attack, uh, which is breaking down the the light clients. So the way that light clients work, they're not full nodes. What they do is they only check the header chain of, of proof of work. Um, and for, for light clients, you can, you can really fool them greatly in the sense that, uh, you can make them believe that, uh, you know, they have Bitcoin when they don't or vice versa. Um, you really do have God mode over these light clients. And why are light clients, um, important? They're very important, for example, in the context of bridges between blockchains. So when you have two blockchains, uh, for example, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and you want to bridge the two, the way you do that is you will build a, a light client. So for example, Ethereum, you'll have a smart contract which has light client access to Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, we, there could be, you know, billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars that are on this bridge. And so these these light clients become huge targets uh, for attackers. All right, let's let's actually um, now go systematically, actually through some of the theory. So the first component, uh, at least, and this is based on actually what you had written out before the show. So if it doesn't match exactly the overview at the beginning, that's why. Um, so Justin, the first component of your theory is about the security budget and the security factor. You talked about how the security budget is what we pay to miners total. And then you have something that you call a security factor, which is the security budget divided by the market cap. And um, so one of my questions for you was, since the security factor is divided by the market cap, and since both of those are denominated in dollars, why is it that you don't think that the rise in price will just keep up with the halving of the block reward so that the subsidy is kind of either at the same level or even like a greater level in dollar terms. Right. So there's, there's, there's two things you can do. You can look at security from an absolute standpoint. You know, what is the number of dollars required to attack Bitcoin? You can also look at security from a relative standpoint, which is basically relative to its market cap. Like how, how much, how many dollars do you, do you need to, to break, um, you know, a, a greater number of dollars. Um, so the, the security factor is going to be the, um, the, the security budget divided by the, by the market cap. And the smaller the security budget, the more leverage you have as an attacker. So for example, if the security factor is only 0.1%, then roughly speaking, for every $1 that you spend attacking Bitcoin, assuming that you are successful, then you'll be able to break 1,000 Bitcoin. Now, if we take the, 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 the standpoint that, you know, Bitcoin will become the, the, the future of money, you know, that it will reach, let's say, um, a market cap of a hundred trillion dollars, um, then you, you need to consider nation states, um, as attackers and, if your security factor is only 0.1%, then the, the, the cost to attack uh, Bitcoin is only going to be a hundred billion dollars. 
And in the grand scheme of things, a hundred billion dollars is, is, is tiny, right? To, to, to break the, the money of the internet for the whole world. So we, I mean, we kind of went over this, but I guess what I'm asking is like, so if mining costs and for, for like equipment and energy are like somewhat fixed, obviously as the hash rate goes, there's just going to be a greater number of miners. So in that sense, it will, the cost, that cost will grow. But like the dollar value of, um, for like for, you know, Bitcoin, uh, in terms of the issuance has been halved every four years, right? So like mm-hmm. you would just kind of need the dollar value to double or, or I guess it's like the mark, you would just need the, not the market, sorry. You right. would need the security budget um, just to double in order to keep up with the halving of the issuance every four years, which like that doesn't seem that challenging to me. Am I wrong? Am I thinking about this wrong? Maybe I'm not thinking about it correctly. Okay, no, I think I think you're focusing on absolute security. So let, let's 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 focus on that. So there's kind of two problems about absolute security. The first one is that even today, absolute security is kind of not satisfactory, right? We talked about it. You know, seven point five billion dollars of economic security around Bitcoin. That's that, that's not satisfactory for the long term future. You know. The, okay, the, so so it goes back to the nation state thing. It's just like yes. at, even. But this, okay. This, the second problem is that. The, the happening of, of the issuance, that's a pro, that's an exponential process that's going to last for decades. We cannot have the price of Bitcoin go exponential for decades. It has to stop at some point. Like you can, you can't have, for example, uh, Bitcoin as an asset to be a hundred times larger than the rest of all the assets in the universe combined, right? There, there needs to be a point at which you know, Bitcoin has reached maximum penetration and maybe that's on the order of a hundred trillion dollars. That's kind of the best case scenario maybe for Bitcoin. Um, beyond that point, you know, it cannot double every four years. The exponential has to stop somewhere. Okay. Okay. Let's actually, so there are so many components to this. Let's just actually keep moving because this one was also really uh, interesting. Can I respond to that? Oh, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. Laura, um, so I, I actually agree with the point you're making, which is what really matters is the purchasing power uh, of the security budget, uh, not necessarily denominating in Bitcoin terms and say this is a tiny fraction of the market capitalization of Bitcoin. It's how expensive is it in real terms to attack the Bitcoin network? I think that's important. I think Justin's making the point that as the market capitalization of Bitcoin goes up, the incentive to attack the network goes up. Uh, but incentive, an increase in incentive doesn't necessarily mean an increase in capacity uh, to attack the network. So I do think it, the absolute security of the network is an important factor to consider. The other thing I think is really important to think about is this is a sort of theoretical analysis. And I think it's really interesting. I, I, you know, I think Justin has laid it out really well, but I think it's much more complex than this because you have to start thinking at this stage, if the, the mental model is, okay, this is so big that nation states want to attack it, we need to think about the game theory of that as well, right? It means that a lot of nation states have probably adopted Bitcoin and they have a stake in Bitcoin and they care about Bitcoin. You could almost imagine a sort of sci-fi future where, uh, you know, one nation state set, drops bombs on the mining facility of another country that's trying to attack Bitcoin because they have a stake in Bitcoin. The U.S., for instance, might have... Uh, uh, Bitcoin as its reserve currency in China is attacking it. And so they go drop bombs on the mining facility in China. 
Uh, so the game theory is much more complex. We need to think about stakeholders. We need to think about how individuals in these countries will react who own a lot of Bitcoin. Like imagine the United States government decides we want to attack Bitcoin, but all of the large financial institutions have a massive part of their savings in Bitcoin. Are they going to allow that to happen? Would they just sit by idly? Uh, from a you know, theoretical model, it's interesting, but in reality, people are going to lobby and people are going to put political pressure and, and this is going to, this is going to be true at the nation state level as well. Uh, political pressure can come in various forms. It can come through military might. It can come through lobbying. Um, yeah. It's almost so, like. So, so the game if, theory is quite complex. And, you know, Justin's bringing up a very interesting theoretical model, but we need to sort of expand our scope here. And if we are talking about the case where Bitcoin has become so big that it's the reserve currency of the world or something like that, yet the, uh, block subsidies decreased to a very low level as mostly transaction fees. There are two things there. It's the security budget versus the adoption. And does the adoption itself provide protection? The fact that people have a financial stake in this. Uh, imagine, for instance, like the uh, politicians in the US try to ban 401ks outright, just banning them and saying all your 401ks are confiscated. What do you think would happen? You'd have riots on the street in America. Um, so, that that's certainly something I think we need to uh, consider here as well. Yeah, it's like if it gets to the point where a nation state does feel the need to fifty one percent attack Bitcoin, then it's like they already lost at that point. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. Well, and there there is one other thing I I, I want to bring up, and you know, Justin and I have spoken about this uh, a few day, days ago. I think it's important to understand that there is a nuclear option here as well. Bitcoin has a proof of work function, which is SHA-256. It's a sort of formula that is used to uh, by miners to calculate whether they've got the right pattern to win the block reward. Under an extremely grave situation, it would be possible for participants in the network to say, we want to change our proof of work function. What would that do to an attacker? Every machine that they had bought, all of the electricity that they had put into attacking the Bitcoin network would instantly be worth nothing. It would wipe away the value instantly. So you need to think about the participants in the network as well, people who have a stake and who would say, the value of our Bitcoins are being attacked. What can we do? We can uh, change the proof of work function. That's a nuclear option, which would be very contentious because people, you know, that's a fundamental building block of Bitcoin. But in an extreme situation, you could imagine something like that happening. You could also have people in the network just rejecting uh, a particular chain. If you have a chain split where you have an attacker trying to double spend uh, and building on their own chain, each individual node can say, I am not going to accept this chain. So you have this internal game theory as well. What do people who are stakeholders do when there is an attack? That's the part which I think is not really being brought up or thought about. And it, it, it's very complicated because we don't know exactly how that would work. People behave in all sorts of crazy ways. And, you know, we saw in the um, Bitcoin block size war that happened in 2017, there was all sorts of crazy game theory where people like the miners were saying, look, if you keep mining the legacy chain, we're going to try and kill your chain. We're going to use our hash power to kill your chain. And it wasn't clear what exactly would happen. So there's a lot of complexity to think about, but we need to focus on the stakeholders as well. 
Okay, so in a moment, we're going to get Justin's response to this. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Ledger is the secure gateway to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. What you need is a Ledger hardware wallet, which combined with the Ledger Live app, gives you access to all your favorite crypto services and dApps from one place. All that with some of the best security. No need to use different platforms to manage and secure your crypto. You have one place for all your crypto needs. Visit ledger.com and make your crypto journey easier and safer. Does your firm need rigorously vetted crypto market data that's aligned with the latest regulatory standards? Since 2017, Digital Asset Research has delivered high-quality crypto data to institutional clients like FTSE Russell and Bloomberg. Digital Asset Research offers clean crypto asset prices and verifiable volume data that's calculated from highly vetted sources, crypto asset reference data, and an events calendar that tracks token and blockchain events like hard forks, soft forks, and client and application updates. Crypto data from Digital Asset Research is available through Refinitiv or directly at digitalassetresearch.com. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stable coins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Back to my conversation with Justin Drake and BJ Boyapati. Okay, Justin, what are you, what's your response? Okay, so I have a few thoughts. Um, the first one is that, you know, we sh- I, I, I agree with, with, with VJ, you know, that um, we should be looking at, at skin in the game. You know, if you have a, a government, for example, that wants to attack Bitcoin, we need to understand how vested they are in Bitcoin. Now, it turns out that, you know, there's, there's going to be some nation states which are maybe overweight Bitcoin and some nation states which might be underweight Bitcoin. So just to, to, to illustrate what I mean by overweight, underweight, let's imagine, for example, that Bitcoin is 20% of the world economy, but that in a specific country, for example, like China, it's only 1% of China's economy. In that situation, China would be underweight Bitcoin. It's not un- implausible for China to be underweight Bitcoin in 20 years. Why? Because they're preventing banks from dealing with, with Bitcoin. They're preventing exchanges from dealing with Bitcoin. They're preventing miners from dealing with Bitcoin. Um, and who knows? Um, you know, you know, the trend is pretty clear that they, they, they don't want uh, Bitcoin to be a large part of the economy. So they want to be underweight Bitcoin. In this situation, they have relatively low skin in the game and they actually have an incentive to go attack Bitcoin because they're essentially short Bitcoin. There's a bit of game theory here to adoption as well. I think if you look at the gold standard, you can say, look, we don't want to be on the gold standard, but eventually there's a massive financial disincentive to not be on the global standard. Uh, you know, in the 19th century, eventually everyone adopted the gold standard because by not being on it and when everyone else is using it, you're harming yourself and your own nation. You know, some nations will try to pursue a path of autarky, which is like completely enclosed, having a closed economy that doesn't interact with anyone. There are 
there are massive economic costs to that. My view is that Bitcoin will eventually become the world reserve currency because it has the properties that make it suitable as a world reserve currency. And, and the nations that are last in line might be upset because they didn't get the biggest benefit from jumping on Bitcoin early on, but they'll just inevitably have to adopt Bitcoin if they want to be part of the global market. Well, I, I, I agree with Justin that they could. Ha- Ch- China is a good example simply because of how long they've resisted the normal internet. But I could actually see two scenarios. One would be that they would attack Bitcoin because they don't have it and um, other countries do. And it's like no, um, you know, uh, nothing off their back if they attack it. Um, but I could also see that, it, you know, if they do want to unseat the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency, then actually maybe they would um, start to suddenly embrace it. So I actually could, uh, you know, see it going both ways. But anyway, Justin, did you want to continue with your response and, and your, yeah. Yeah, sure. That, that's that's one aspect, you know, trying to to look at, at a skin in the game and, um, you know, you, your response, VJ, um, is that, you know, it, it, it harms them to not have skin in the game. But, you know, that, that's, that's based on the assumption that Bitcoin will be, you know, the, the winning monetary shelling point, uh, for the internet. And, you know, the whole, the whole reason why we're having this, this discussion is maybe to, 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 to put that to, to, to a test. Because if, if you want to be the monetary shelling point, uh, for, for the internet, you need to have predictability. And as such, you need to have predictable security for you know decades and centuries to come, and and this is not something that Bitcoin uh, provides um, um, out, out of the box. The other point I wanted to make, besides you know skinning the game of governments, is that this is not only a game of of governments. Attacking Bitcoin is a game that is accessible to individuals, right? Now, it would be rich individuals, but individuals nonetheless. So we could look, for example. At, you know, Elon Musk, he has several, you know, whatever it is, 50 times the budget to go attack Bitcoin single-handedly. This is one single entity. Um, you could look at large entities like, like MicroStrategy, right? MicroStrategy have over a hundred thousand uh, Bitcoin and they have no plans to sell them, right? It's, it's accumulation only. And so maybe in 20 years, they might have 200,000 uh, Bitcoin and that would be 20x the annual issuance. And so, if for some reason or another, you know, this, this, this one entity is, is compromised, uh, you know, maybe they're hacked, maybe they're under pressure by some government or whatever it is, then, you know, they would have multiple times the budget to, to, to go out, to go attack, um, Bitcoin. So, the, you know, this is not just a, a game for, um, nation states. It's also a game for, for large, um, individuals. Then another point that uh, VJ put forward is that, we always have the nuclear option to replace proof of work. And I don't think that's true. I think this is a, a, a flawed um, kind of um, argument. And, and, and the reason is, is as follows. If you were to replace um, proof of work, what would you replace it to? Now, you don't have time to go build um, another proof of work system, you know, that's based on ASICs. You know, that's the maturation process. Uh, which in the case of Bitcoin, you know, it t- took many, many years. Um, and so what you have to resort to is basically proof of work on commodity hardware. Now, what type of commodity hardware do we have? We have basically three types. We have CPUs, GPUs, and FPGAs that you can just go buy off the shelf and use for, for proof of work. 
Now let's assume that it's it's one of these three. It doesn't really matter. Let's assume it's it's the GPUs. Well, that's not that's not going to be sustainable uh, defense in the sense that the attacker has now just simply has to buy whatever it is, ten billion dollars of of GPUs, and ta da! Now they can go attack uh, Bitcoin. And now you could you could think to yourself, aha! Well, we could we could do the nuclear option another time, right? Uh, we could change proof of work another time, but what I, what are you going to move to? You, you know, we no longer have these, the ASIC, you no longer have GPUs. So now you're going to have to go to CPUs and then you might do it again and FPGAs, but then you've, now you've run out of options. You, you've, you've covered all your commodity hardware and, and, and there's nowhere else to go, to go hide in terms of, of, of changing the, the proof of work. Well, you have to think about the context in which this argument is being made. But Bitcoin is like widely adopted and you switch the proof of work function. Everyone who has Bitcoin and is a stakeholder uh, suddenly switches to mining on their computer. And so you have millions or tens of millions of computers on commodity hardware mining. And somehow this attacker needs to uh, accumulate that number of uh, computational power that's being used by all of the stakeholders of Bitcoin who want to defend the network. I think that it's not, it's again, something which isn't like uh, that you can do immediately. Like a, an attacker can't suddenly accumulate tens of millions of computers and put them in a, a, a mining facility and start attacking again. I mean, I think that's very, very implausible. Now, I think the, the, the model that you're putting forward is implausible. So there's basically three types of models like, like that you could try and put forward when you look at Bitcoin security. There's, there's basically the, the, the honest majority. So what that means is that basically you have, uh, you know, the, the, the majority of the network, which is honest. Like generally this, this is not seen as a, as a, as a, as a realistic model. And so you, you want to go to the, uh, the rational majority. So the, the major, the rational majority will only mine, you know, to defend the Bitcoin network if it's, if it's, if it's rational to financially rational to do, to do so. But the thing is that they only, it's only rational if the, 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 the cost of, of doing the mining is, is smaller than the rewards that they get. But, you know, the, the whole context of this discussion is that we have low issuance and we have totally unpredictable fees and potentially extremely low fees during, during bear markets. Um, and so there will only be so much, uh, mining power that will, that will be rational. And so what you're assuming is you have altruistic miners. So these are miners that are willing to pay to secure a common good. And, and the problem with, with, with common goods is that you have the, the tragedy of the commons. Um, and you can't just assume that people will altruistically burn tens of millions of dollars every day, um, to secure a network, which, and, and for which the action of doing so doesn't benefit them directly. It's only benefits this common good where we have a tragedy of the commons. Yeah. And even just on a coordination level, coordinating <laughs> millions of people to do something is like really, really difficult. But anyway, Vijay, what were you going to say? I, I want to also talk about uh, another part of Justin's argument that I have a bit of a problem with, which is the idea that um, we've done a historic, Justin's done a historical analysis of uh, transaction fees over time as the, the block subsidy has decreased and it hasn't dramatically increased. I, I think uh, it's important to understand Bitcoin's path to becoming the global reserve currency because I think that plays into it as well. Like 
people's usage of Bitcoin now isn't what it will be in the future. Uh, there is an evolution of money where money goes from being, uh, and I talk about this in my book, it goes from being a collectible to being a store of value, then a medium of exchange, and eventually a unit of account. This is a big misunderstanding that a lot of people had when, when Bitcoin was first created. They thought, oh, this is a medium of exchange. We should be using it for buying and selling things in commerce. And they were really confused why no one wanted to do that. So part of the, the reason my, I believe that we don't see you know, a really large increase in transaction fees right now is that Bitcoin is transitioning through this phase of becoming a store of value. It's a nascent store of value. And people largely use Bitcoin as a means of savings. They don't move it around very much. I think this is going to change over time. I think eventually Bitcoin is going to become more of a medium of exchange. And as it does, we're going to have much more movement and much more transaction fees. Ultimately, though, I think most medium of exchange usage is going to happen on second layer networks and that what Bitcoin at the base layer is going to be used for is settlement between banks. So large financial institutions are going to settle with each other on a daily basis. So JP Morgan and, and uh, Citibank, for instance, will settle $3 billion worth of Bitcoin on a daily basis because their, their customers are sending funds back and forth and they'll have some uh, difference in balance and they'll settle with each other on the blockchain. Once we get to that stage, I think the, the fees that are going to be used on the Bitcoin network are going to be much, much higher. Uh, this is under a, what I think will be a Bitcoin global reserves standard. And I think it would be, we could easily see Bitcoin fees in the thousands or tens of thousands of thousands of dollars because um, people are settling very large amounts of money. Uh, and I think the demand for the block space will be much higher in the future than it is now, which is going to drive transaction fees. I don't think the historical analysis is, uh, you know, what they say in the stock market, um, past performance doesn't guarantee future returns. I think past transaction fees for Bitcoin doesn't necessarily get, get, you know, predict what the transaction fees are going to be in the future. And I think that really is because of the stage of monetization that Bitcoin is in, Prim primarily uh, a means of holding savings. And, and Justin's talking about how, you know, the fees go up during bull markets and go down during bear markets. This, again, is part of the process of monetization. It happens, we, we've kind of learned We've never seen this before, by the way. We've never seen a monetary good being monetized in real time in the space of like a few years or a few decades. The process of monetization for gold took millennia. And we've seen it's a very compressed time frame. And what we've learned is there are these hype cycles. And, and I agree with Justin that, you know, the, uh, the, the transaction fees increase during the, the boom phase or the, the parabolic phase of the uh, hype cycle because people are just trading back and forth in this speculative frenzy uh, and using the block space just to move to exchanges. But that won't be true in the future. But these hype cycles are going to diminish in magnitude as Bitcoin becomes more widely adopted. We're not going to see uh, a hype cycle in 20 years from now where Bitcoin drops 90%. As Bitcoin gets to the market capitalization of gold and surpasses it, as I believe it will, its volatility will be commensurate with the volatility of gold and eventually decrease below that volatility. Uh, so the model that we're thinking about is like a sort of looking in the rearview mirror. It's not looking forward. Uh, to look forward, we need to think about how will Bitcoin be used? What implications will that have on transaction fees? 
How much demand will there be for block space? Um, and, and I think all of those things are going to change very dramatically as Bitcoin becomes adopted by financial institutions, by nation states, by wealthy individuals. It's going to change a lot. Justin, what's your response? Yeah, so I guess my first response, which is kind of qualitative, is that it's, for me at least, as a kind of a designer of blockchains, as it were, it's unsatisfactory to have the security of the blockchain rely on something which is unpredictable. And it's almost as if Bitcoiners are assuming the best possible case for Bitcoin, you know, is going to be money for the internet. And, you know, in that situation, you know, and this very large transaction sees, then, you know, maybe Bitcoin can be, can be secure, but, you know, that, that is quite a bit big if, right. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to make that assumption. I'm happy to, you know, put aside, you know, the past, which is the past and which doesn't predict the future. I agree with that and, and just assume in the best case scenario. So let's assume that the uh, Bitcoin network is the Bitcoin asset, sorry, is worth a hundred trillion dollars. Um, now let's say that, um, we want to have a security factor of 1%. 1%, by the way, is, is smaller than the current security factor, which is at 1.6%. Now, because there's only so many transactions that the Bitcoin network can do every year because of the, the, the block limit, which is fairly small, it, it turns out you can only do roughly 100 million transactions every year on Bitcoin. And so to achieve this 1% security factor, as Vijay said, you actually need $10,000 average transaction fee. Now, $10,000 is an insane amount of money to do one single transaction, even in the context of settlement. Now, one, one of the, 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 the reasons is that there are ways to settle other than doing a transaction on the layer one Bitcoin blockchain. And if you have two ways of settling and one is significantly cheaper than the other, then you will go with the cheaper one. That's just the rational aspect of the model that we have, the rational players. Now, let me give a, you know, a, a, an example, right? You have, um, you have a, 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 a lightning channel, right? Um, when you make a, a transaction, you know, you want to, let's say, settle some amount on the, on, on the lightning network. Um, that doesn't accrue fees to the, to the Bitcoin network, or you want to settle on the lit liquid network, or you want to settle, for example, wrapped Bitcoins on, on Ethereum, or there's various other ways to settle than to use the, the, the layer one. So I think there's basically three, three big assumptions. Assumption number one, Bitcoin will take over the world. Um, assumption, um, number two, that even if there was no alternative to settling and the only way to settle Bitcoin was using layer one, that these, these uh, institutions would be willing to pay $10,000 per, per transaction, which is questionable. But three, that there's no competition to the settlement of, of, of Bitcoin. Um, that, that, that I don't think is, is, is true. I think there's a disagreement of terms. I mean, I think the different, there is a huge difference between payment and settlement. Like using the Lightning Network to do a payment is not the same thing as settling in, uh, settling Bitcoin. Settlement of Bitcoin is 
having confidence in final possession of the Bitcoin that you think you own. Uh, like financial institutions in, um, in the 19th century, when they're under a gold standard, they had customers paying back and forth with pieces of paper, but that didn't mean that they believed they had the gold. They had the gold when they settled the gold and when the gold you know, entered their vaults and they had the gold. The equivalent for Bitcoin is settlement on the blockchain. Like a, a lightning payment is definitely not a form of settlement. I would, I would disagree. Um, when you, like the lightning network is designed in such a way that um, you know, receiving X amount of Bitcoin through the lightning network is essentially the same as receiving the real thing. Like it's designed to be trustless. It's, um, you know, there is this, this, this one, one assumption that basically the, the base layer is censorship resistant. But if you have that layer, that which you need in order to have, you know, this monetary, um, status, then the lightning network is designed in such a way that, that Bitcoin that you receive is, is a, a, as good as, as the real thing. And so, um, you know, transactions on lightning are effectively settlements, at least from a security standpoint. I mean, the one thing I will say about what Vijay said was, um, the idea that Bitcoin will be a settlement layer for big banks, I think is, um, it just means like we're sort of in the same system we are now where we're all bank customers and, um, we don't, you know, like it, like this, it's almost like the technology, like nothing changed, at least from the user point of view. And so in that regard, like, I feel that, like that, that I, I, don't, I think I would disagree with that. I think that something very important changed, which is that the money is not owned or controlled by any government and can't be inflated. That's a very, very different to uh, what's currently the case, which is banks settling with each other using dollars because the underlying underlying monetary system that's being settled on is uh, very easily politically coerced, very easily inflatable. Uh, this is where I think the biggest impact of Bitcoin will be, is that it is a new monetary standard that can't be inflated and it can't be politically manipulated. The fact that we have a financial system on top of it, I think, is inevitable. And Hal Finney, um, the guy who received the very first Bitcoins from Satoshi, wrote about this all the way back in 2010. He said, we need second layer systems. We need banks on top of Bitcoin because Bitcoin is designed in a way that it's very hard to change. And Satoshi wrote about this a long time ago as well. He said, as soon as Bitcoin version 0.1 was released, it was set in stone. It's designed in a way that's very, very difficult to, to change. Uh, and that's a good thing because we can rely on Bitcoin's inflation schedule. We can rely on the fact that there's only going to be 21 million Bitcoins. It was easy to change Bitcoin as it, I think very easy to change Whole, most altcoins, um, I, I have no trust in their inflation schedule. So I, I don't think the fact that the financial you know, institutions that are built on Bitcoin look somewhat similar. I think there'll be big differences. For instance, they'd be like using Lightning instead of using the Federal Reserve. That doesn't mean that the change isn't profound, but very geopolitically profound to have a different monetary base, which is non-political and non-inflatable. And, but then when you said like it'll be JP Morgan settling, will I as a customer of JP Morgan? I was just Morgan, giving examples. It won't, it won't be JP right, Morgan. Right, but be, but yeah. like, <laughs> so will I be transacting in, in Bitcoin on my end or will I still be using dollars? You will probably be using the Lightning Network and you'll be connecting with some uh, node operator oh. on the Lightning Network. Okay. Uh, and that, that may be JP Morgan. It may be someone who's currently building out their lightning node now i was kind of just giving I think it's it probably not jp morgan <laughs> yeah i hope it's not jp morgan but yeah. 
Uh, but well, also they're doing their um, shoot quorum or, or well, I guess they sold that to consensus, but anyway. Okay. Uh, Justin, I think you wanted to respond. Yeah. Um, I think VJ is, is heavily downplaying the, the lack of self custody. Um, you know, I see it as a, as very problematic uh, for Bitcoin. I mean, in a similar way that a lack of easy self custody for gold, um, you know, didn't turn out so well for, for gold. Right, gold has all the properties, you know, that uh, that VJ was talking about. It can't be controlled by governments. It uh, can't be inflated away, and yet gold hasn't, you know, really succeeded um, in 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 modern society. And part of the reason, I believe, is because it's difficult to self custody gold. And so what happens is that you have banks, right? You have these financial institutions, just like the future that VJ is talking about, and. The problem is that these central entities now become pressure points, right? So they become pressure points for for for, for governments to to start um, um, coercing. And so, you know, um, one of the beliefs of, of the the Ethereum community is that you know you can only achieve true resistance to coercion from governments if you remove, you know, these these custodians and you have self custody. Um, of your of your assets. Um, I mean, another thing that that that, that VJ uh, talked about is that you can rely on the twenty one million limit. Um, and actually, I I think this is a, an, an illusion, a dream. I think it's a, a meme that has weak fundamentals. And the reason it's a meme with weak fundamentals is precisely because of the topic of of today's discussion, which is security. If you have an asset which is insecure, then its 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 basic livelihood um, is 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 jeopardized. And so, basically, what I foresee is a situation where there's going to be two bitcoins. Like the unsustainable bitcoin from a security standpoint will continue on living, and then there might be a group of people who say, "Hey, we're going to fork out the 21 million limit, and we're going to have sustainable bitcoin." And then, guess what? Market forces will come at play. The unsustainable bitcoin will you know likely die off because it's it's insecure and then the the, the sustainable one will be the, the next best thing that we can have because you know we don't live in an ideal world and we can't always have the dreams that we dream. And so in that situation where you know the sustainable Bitcoin wins out uh, you've effectively been debased. Um, and this is kind of there's the saying, right, that, uh, you know, fate loves irony and it's, you know, the, the, the Bitcoin, um, uh, the, the Bitcoin philosophy is to try and, and, and be as, as ossified as possible, kind of for the sake of, of ossification. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's quite uh, possible that the, the premature ossification, um, of, of the, the, the Bitcoin network will lead down the line to a necessary change. And so, Bitcoin, in that sense, has sacrificed long-term predictability for the benefit of short-term predictability. In the short term, um, you know, we can predict what will happen, but at some point, things become so unsustainable that something has to change. And one of the easiest things that could change is simply removing the 21 million limit. Wow. And in that instance, would it then become just a perpetual issuance? Or is that what you would propose? 
Yeah, I think a one percent um, tail issuance um, is is a is a pretty good um, you know de- design. Um, at least it provides a guaranteed security factor, um, and this is something that uh, I believe other Bitcoiners. I think this is uh, VJ told me this that uh, it's one of the the the, the the things that uh, Peter Todd, not that I agree often with Peter Todd, but in this specific instance, uh, Peter Todd wished that uh, Bitcoin from day one had, um, you know, this tail issuance to provide guaranteed uh, security factor. Mm, okay. So Vijay, do you want to give one last response? Because um, I mean, I, by the way, you guys, I had like so many questions and um, we didn't even get to all. I mean, I, th- I think we hit on most of the topics. This is just like there's just so much to it. But there is one last question I do want to ask after BJ gives his last response. Yeah, I, I don't want to get too wedded to this idea. I think, you know, part of you, your response and Justin's response to the financial institutions was like, oh, you know, everyone's going to be using JP Morgan. I think it would look very different that there'd be far more financial institutions and there would still be in some individuals who did self-custody Bitcoin. But if you look at it mathematically, it's simply not the case that everyone is going to own on-chain Bitcoin. It's just impossible. There are 8 billion people, uh, there are 21 million Bitcoin, and a person owning that tiny, tiny fraction of a Bitcoin is not going to be able to transact that Bitcoin. It's just not going to work. So some very large fraction of the world's population is going to own Bitcoin through custody, through a different kind of financial institution, a much smaller, I think, financial institution, they will interact with someone who's on the Lightning Network. The other thing is, I think Bitcoin is not going to change the 21 million supply limit. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I think Bitcoin is treated much more like a protocol than as a piece of software. I think Ethereum is treated more like a piece of software than as a a protocol. And the difference is, with protocols, immutability is incredibly important. Uh, I'll just give one quick example. There's a protocol for power sockets in the United States, which is the shape of the power socket and all the devices that use it. You do not want to change that protocol. You don't want to change the shape of the, the power socket because everyone who's using that power socket is suddenly unable to use it. Now, you can make backwards compatible changes. So, for instance, with the power sockets in the US, they didn't used to be a ground. They added a ground, which didn't make it so that all the devices which use the old power sockets couldn't use them anymore. So Bitcoin has this philosophy. It's a value transfer protocol, and it's incredibly important to stay backwards compatible. It's very strongly ingrained into the culture of the community. Uh, and I think if you embrace a different culture where, oh, we can just change the protocol whenever we want, the trust in the protocol that you can build on the protocol is severely undermined and the properties of the protocol so Ethereum, for instance, has made their so-called ultrasound money by changing the issuance of Ethereum. I think this only proves that Bitcoin, uh, sorry, Ethereum's issuance can be changed and could potentially be changed in the future if enough people in, in the Ethereum development community became Keynesians and started you know, subscribing to Keynesian economics and said, well, we need really good inflation here because we believe that it's required for growth, then that could happen. But I think that that's a big difference. And I think uh, that's one of the reasons that Bitcoin is, is not going to change is this belief that it's a protocol, not that it's a piece of software. Okay, so I'm I'm glad you brought up Ethereum because this was the last question I did want to ask. Um, Justin, you said in the last show that we did that you felt Ethereum was the fulfillment of Satoshi's vision. And as I'm sure we all saw on social media, that was a very controversial statement to say the least. I mean, I knew it at the moment. Um 
I was trying to wrap up the show, so I didn't want to go there at that time. Um, but can you explain what it is that you mean by that? Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the things that, uh, so by the way, I regret using the term Satoshi Vision because there's literally a project called Satoshi Vision. And I didn't mean to like align myself to that project at all, if anything. Um, but yeah, after the show, one of the things that I did is I, I tweeted, uh, Satoshi's very first commit, right? So we have, um, you know, a very good record, um, of, uh, Satoshi's very first piece of, of public code, uh, um, for, for Bitcoin. And one of the things that you'll find, and this is not at all kind of obfuscated or hidden in any way, like in, in the code, uh, Satoshi was thinking of building a marketplace on top of Bitcoin. When you want to build a marketplace, you basically use uh, money as one of the Lego blocks, but you're going to need many other decentralized Lego blocks in order to get a marketplace running. You're going to need decentralized identity. You're going to need decentralized escrow contract. You're going to need decentralized stable coins. You're going to need decentralized reputation. You're going to need decentralized file storage. There's lots and lots of things that you are going to need to build in order to get a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer marketplace, which was the vision of Satoshi literally in the code, the very first commit um, that he, he put forward uh, for Bitcoin. Now, unfortunately, Bitcoin has become, well, maybe not unfortunately, but it, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that Bitcoin has become digital gold. Now, gold is this very interesting asset. It's, a, it's literally a rock, a shiny rock that you spend a ton of energy to get out of the ground, dirty ground, and then you just put it back in the ground, just in the vaults of some, of some bags. It's kind of this the somewhat crazy concept, but you know, that, that, that's what money is. Um, but the, the, the thing that's a little bit disappointing is that it's not a Lego block in the sense that the idea of Bitcoin is that you hold it in a vault for decades and you just don't touch it. You just look at it. It's shiny and you, you enjoy just looking at your, your pet rock. Um, in the context of, of Ethereum, we were trying to build, you know, these money Legos, that's literally what we call them. Um, and we want to stack them together and we want to build cool stuff, such as decentralized peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces. And by the way, this is part of the reason why I was working on Open Bazaar is because I, I felt, you know, that this was kind of pro-Satoshi's vision. Um, and I wanted to, to help out. It turned out that I was maybe 10 years too early, right? All the building blocks were, were not there. You know, we had escrow contracts with Bitcoin script. We had Bitcoin, but we, we don't have, you know, m many of the things like stable coins and uh, reputation and identity and all, all these other things. So yeah, long story short is I, I see the opportunity kind of this, this total addressable market for, for blockchain technology to be maybe a hundred X larger than this, this, this digital, um, gold aspect, which is interesting. Uh, but you know, in the grand scheme of things is, is uh, missing the missing the big picture and missing the the, the wider opportunity. Hmm. And VJ, what do you have to say about that? I think uh, Ethereum is a big experiment. As a computer scientist, I think it's doing something that I I think is actually not possible. I think you the, you know the saying "smart, sexy, sane" pick two. I think there's the equivalent for blockchains, which, which is decentralized 
Turing complete and scalable. And uh, I think Ethereum is trying to be all three, but one of them is going to fall apart. And I think the thing that will fall apart with Ethereum is this, the decentralized aspect. I think there's another problem with Ethereum, you know, sort of taking this approach of this is cool software and we can upgrade and we can add all of this stuff is that anyone can do that, that too if it's a piece of software. If it's not something that's immutable and you trust it and you believe that it's something you can store value in, you, you have these other projects coming along saying, oh, we'll just copy the things that we like in Ethereum and add all this new stuff. If you're Ethereum and you're trying to make a change to you know, help the scalability, because Ethereum right now is almost unusable. With the fees on Ethereum, if you worry about fees, uh, I don't worry about fees as a settlement system, but I worry about fees if I'm trying to do these tiny smart contracts. The fees on Ethereum are insane right now. So you have these other platforms coming along like Solana saying, look, we can do the same thing with way, way cheaper fees and we can scale way faster than this and we can do all these new things. It's very hard to change something like Ethereum when it's at scale. It's like changing a plane that's flying uh, and taking the engine out while it's in midair and changing the engine. So they're trying to do this kind of thing uh, and they're trying to make Ethereum scalable at the same time as allowing it to do all of this stuff. I think at best, it's an experiment. Uh, I think it's a very, uh, it's an experiment that's very unlikely to succeed because I do not believe it's possible to have these three attributes at the same time, decentralized, Turing complete and scalable. But, you know, Justin is working on this. Justin, I, you know, just from speaking here, is an incredibly smart person. You know, I commend the efforts of people who are working on this thing. Uh, it's it's wor- worthy of effort. Uh, I just think it's doomed to failure. All right. Well, we're well over time. Um, and I feel like this conversation could have gone on a lot longer because, as I said, I mean, there was, there's just so much we didn't even discuss that I had on, on my list, but, um, maybe we'll, you know, revisit this because this is a kind of perennial topic. I remember learning about this potential issue back in 2015 when I first started learning about Bitcoin. And I was like, I know I've said this before, but, you know, I was thinking, Oh, you know, that's going to happen in 2140 and I won't be around to see it. And I wanted to know what, how it would turn out. But, um, apparently Justin thinks that it'll happen in, couple of decades. So maybe I will get to see what happens. Um, but, you know, people are constantly, you know, writing pieces on this issue and and talking about it. So I think maybe we could revisit in the future. Um, but in the meantime, you guys, this was super fun, very thought provoking. And um, for each of you, why don't you say where people can learn more about you and your work? Sure. Happy to go first. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter, uh, Drake F. Justin. VJ. You can find me on Twitter as well, real underscore VJ, and you can find my book wherever books are sold. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thanks again. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. Thanks Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Justin, VJ, and the issue of whether Bitcoin can be secured by transaction fees only, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.